You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I just want to give a quick shout out to everyone who congratulated In Defense of Plants on its 200th episode. I really mean it when I say I couldn't be doing this without you. So the success of this podcast is largely thanks to you. So thank you again. All right. When someone says the Caribbean or the Bahamas or any tropical island in that region of the world, you generally think of sandy beaches, crystal clear waters, coral, and boats. But do you think about plants? My guest today certainly does. Joining us from Kew is Sarah Barrios. She's the Islands Conservation Partnership Coordinator, and she focuses on the wonderful plant diversity of many of the UK overseas territories, but today's conversation is largely going to be focused in the Caribbean. Her work is incredibly important, and it puts into context the issues facing a lot of plants, especially in tourism-dominated areas. Much of her work focuses on assessing species based on the protocols by the IUCN Red List. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Sarah. I hope you enjoy. All right, Sarah Barrios, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? So my name is Sarah, as Matt just introduced me, and I'm a UK Overseas Partnership Coordinator at the Royal Botanic Gardens queue in England in the UK. Wonderful. And obviously this is a plant podcast. What was your introduction to plants? And uh, was it always an interest of yours or is this something you kind of came to later in your career? Uh, well, I came later from, uh, so I did a degree in biology and I have to be honest, when I start my university, I wanted to work in a lab and study disease and genes and <laughs> everything that was small. But uh, I did, I have a, a very good teacher of uh, biology in A-levels that had already raised some interest on plants. He started his class his first day saying, I'm going to start teaching plants because it's the most interesting thing we have to study during the year. So I thought, well, let's give it a try. And I really enjoy it. So I think that developed through the course. And when I reached the final year of my degree, I actually chose a plant-related subject to do my dissertation. So he had conquered me. (laughs) Well, it's wonderful. And I always love it when someone goes in not really knowing much about plants and then someone sparks that interest and and the rest is history, as they say. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned you work in the UK overseas territories. And for those of us that aren't familiar with what that means, um, what is a UK overseas territory? It's kind of self-explanatory, but it's best coming from someone who works with it. Well, yeah, I, I actually, the majority of the people always ask me that, where are the, what are the overseas territories? So uh, the majority of these territories are small islands, which are scattered around the world. And you can find some in the Caribbean Sea or in the middle of the Atlantic. And they are territories that have still some connection to the U- to the UK, to the mainland, but that they're completely autonomous as countries. So they retain this link. And um, we, we work at Q, we have a program basically to work together with our colleagues there to help to protect the plants within these territories. 
the fact that they are islands, the majority of them are quite remote landmasses and they've been isolated for enough years, so they have really high levels of endemism. So that's why they're so interesting. They have actually more biodiversity or plant diversity than the UK mainland. So. Yeah, that's always interesting to kind of put those two numbers together and realize the mainland uh, somehow comes out less. But of course, many of these sit in very favorable climates for plant growth. But in terms of where exactly you've been focusing over the, the last few years, um, is there a region of UK overseas territories that really kind of grabs the most of your attention? Well, I, I, I work across all the UK overseas territories and we've been trying to develop initiatives across all of them. I myself, I've been mainly focusing on the Caribbean overseas territories, those places that people might know, like the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, Turks and Caicos, Montserrat and Anguilla. I've been working with my colleagues there to redlist all the endemics and endemic plant species from these territories. So trying to map where these species occur, uh, what are the main threats, and uh, if uh, there's no conservation action or, you know, how near extinction these plants are, and then try to think what are the conservation initiatives needed to really avoid plant extinction. But I, I really work across all the overseas territories, but my research is be mainly on this, on the Caribbean overseas territories. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> recently been to a new overseas territories for me. I've been to the British Indian Ocean Territory and I went there for a, a short trip of two and a half weeks to map the vegetation of the island. But yeah, it's quite similar because they're all tropical places. So wow. some of the vegetation I recognize from the Caribbean. <laughs> well, that's good. But that is extremely important work. And it's interesting because when you hear anyone talk about the Caribbean or the Virgin Islands, it's it's always because of beaches and resorts and coral <laughs> and things in the water. You don't really hear too much about what's going on on land and especially not related to plants. So I guess since a lot of your focus has been on the Caribbean, we'll start there. Is there a way of characterizing sort of the floristic, um, I guess, ecotype that, that grows on these islands? I mean, what would someone see jumping onto land in these areas? Is it very tropical, lush, or is it kind of dry and scraggly? Well, it really depends on the island, I have to say, and the elevation that they have. But in the British Virgin Islands, the Caribbean dry forest is the main forest type. So that will be the main, I would say, vegetation type. And it really varies. You have the coastal scrub, which will have a lot of cacti. Uh, you will have forest with uh, low elevation. You have mid-range elevation and then forest with more elevation, with more, more moisture. So it really depends where you are and the elevation of the island and the origin of the island, because if it's from volcanic or limestone orange, you will have as well, we will have a different plant composition. But I think just going back to the way you, you refer to your question, I think when people go and look at the coral and look at the animals, they forget that a lot of this diversity is underpinned by the plant diversity that you have on land. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is why any system is an open system. Plants are what brings in that energy and, and eventually it finds its way to other systems. But it is intriguing to think about diversity, as you mentioned. This is often a very biodiverse region, especially in relation to places like mainland Europe. And it sounds like 
I mean, size for size, it's all of that variation in soil type and parent material and topography that really lend to a lot of different, you know, niche space, so to speak, for a lot of speciation to occur. Is that kind of, I mean, in a broad spectrum, why it is such a biodiverse region, just because there's so many uh, little nooks and crannies and opportunities for plants to establish and, and go crazy? Well, and also because it's, um, they, I think I mentioned that at the beginning, you know, they remote land masses, which have been isolated for enough time to develop this endemism. I think that also helps to make these places special for the plant diversity. But the Caribbean itself is considered the third most important global hotspot. And, um, you know, that is because of this assemblage of unique habitats, unique species, which really help to support these unique, uh, unique ecosystems, really. Wow, that is actually a very remarkable fact that I was unaware of. So this is a biodiversity hotspot, and that's a big point of concern. Obviously, you're here today talking about what's being done to kind of understand the threats to vegetation. So big picture, thinking about the Caribbean, especially as a tourism hotspot, you know, what are the major threats to the flora of this region? Is it easy to characterize? Has it changed over the years? Well, it changed over the years because, you know, until there was colonization in these uh, places, there would have been primary forests pretty much covering all these islands. And then when Europeans reached these places and they started doing uh, planting uh, cotton and sugarcane and other crops that basically in some places almost destroyed the entire primary forest. When these crops got abandoned, the forests recovered some of it have never recovered. Uh, and now we have what we have in most of these places will be secondary forests. But now the forests face other kinds of threats. So we talk about tourism. Tourism is something that is important, has a livelihood, but mass tourism can also lead to uncontrolled development. And, you know, I give you an example where, for instance, there's a Mangroves are extremely important to hold storm surges. And the mangroves are on the coasts, which are places where people like to build big hotels, big resorts. So sometimes they are the type of vegetation that suffers more. If people don't have a concern about, you know, what to destroy and what to preserve and don't think about the consequences of that. So the major threats are really we losing suitable habitat for these species because not in all the places, but uncontrolled uh, development leads to losing this habitat. We also having problems with uh, invasive species, which bought, bought in as exotic plants either for landscape or of trade or for food, and they grew uncontrolled and now they actually um, threatening and the habitat of these native species. So. I would say those are two of probably the biggest threats that uh, the plants from the overseas territories in the Caribbean and probably in the other Caribbean uh, countries, which I don't know that well, face at the moment. And you could actually say that climate change is a, a threat that we, we're not really sure. We are known <laughs> what uh, <laughs> we're doing and what we'll do in the future to the, to the vegetation. Yeah, it's alarming to think about that, especially, again, uh, in the context of hurricanes and, and sea level mm. rise and all of those other things. And then on top of that, just the, the, the small surface area, land surface area available, and then, again, the rampant human development. And I'm curious, too, is thinking about farming versus tourism here. 
Uh, it sounds to me like, or at least my assumption would be that farming would have done more widespread damage back in the day, but now tourism in the Caribbean being an oceanic island or set of islands, it, it seems like, uh, you know, there'd probably be areas that are now today hit harder than they were in the past. So like you mentioned, mangroves is a lot of that development pretty much centered around the coast and then whatever invasive species get brought in can then spread out into, you know, the rest of the countryside. Uh, yes, yeah, but that's, yeah, because people like to live near where there's infrastructure, you know, so we'll be near ports, we'll be near the coast, because that's where also small fishermen communities will, will establish once people stop working on these big crops. So the, these coastal areas are the areas that are more, more affected. But then if there's big roads that open through the middle of the islands or exploration of forests, then invasive species will just move in. So they won't stop in those coastal um, habitats. They will also move in. But it's all related to human movement, you know. Right. And even, for instance, the introduction of um, feral animals like uh, cows or goats that will roam free, those will also carry seeds with them and will move the invasive species further inside into these islands. So it it is a big problem, I have to say. Right. And then thinking about it from an island perspective, uh, introducing large herbivores like that probably adds another level of damage to flora that just hasn't evolved to cope with such browsing pressures. Exactly. Yeah, I think you summarize it well, because first they're not used to have that uh, pressure and they're not used to be predated. So these animals will feed on the or the seeds or small seedlings, but they also have huge impact on the soil. So they will damage the topsoil that will prevent the small seeds from germinate. So it's almost like a circle of threats that this, these plants cannot really escape. Dang. Another thing that we see, for instance, I'm thinking about the island of Anagada, which is a limestone island uh, in the British Virgin Islands, where these introduced animals, for instance, feed on the native uh, flora, which is also the food of the endemic rock iguana. Oh. So they actually impact in the ecosystem as a whole. You know, they impact in the plants, but then if you reduce the amount of plants you have available, is all the knocked out effect that that causes. Dang. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, tough pills to swallow from a conservation yeah. standpoint, but this is why you and the team you're part of are there and, and doing work there. And you mentioned IUCN red listing. It's something we've talked a, lot, a little bit about before on this podcast, but let's bring new listeners up to speed. I mean, what is, what is IUCN red listing all about? Big picture here. And then we can get into kind of how your job works. So when we red list a species, we're basically assessing the extinction risk of the species. So how near extinction a particular species is and why do we, why is that important? Because knowing what's the threat category, or it might not be threatened, but if we know a particular species is threatened and knowing why, we can actually plan conservation action to avoid this extinction. So an example, if we know that a, a particular species is there's very few individu- individuals in the wild or is actually not reproducing uh, sexually, we can actually do seed collection and bring these seeds for long-term uh, storage, either to in-country uh, seed banks or to the seed bank we have at Kew, and actually do studies on the seed to try to understand why the plant is behaving like that. But 
you know, we can actually plan the conservation action based on these threats. Wow, that's really exciting. I mean, again, thinking about conservation, it'd be great if we had endless amounts of funds and time to pump into this. And again, unfortunately, most of that goes to animal conservation over plants. But yeah, I have to agree. <laughs> yeah. You know, in terms of prioritization, this is really important, right? And it, it, you need to get the most bang for your buck. And, and you really kind of have to draw a line somewhere and say, okay, these are immediately at risk of going extinct. These are in decline and need monitoring. And these are, you know, secure or some level that's a little bit higher, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like a scale that uh, this assessment gets run on. Yeah, definitely. I think you summarize it really well. I think one of the importance as well of doing that is by assessing the extinction risk of these species, we can also try to lobby governments and the NGOs to try to get these species into either the national law or into um, their own initiatives to basically focus on these species. So it's it's almost like a, it is a tool for conservation for direct action or to try to promote and uh, raise awareness of this particular species. I can give you an example of a conservation initiative that we're running at Kew and we've been doing it in the British Virgin Islands, which is the tropical important plant areas. This is established and red listing is um, a fundamental part of this process. The uh, very near the initiative for important bird areas to try to establish which areas in the tropics are important for plants. And we're doing the, these by establishing with the areas that have more threatened species, the areas that will have more habitats that are important for these species, and there is the hold plants which are important locally, like medicinal plants. So that's actually an example where Red List is used for a big conservation initiative that can and then be used to prioritize for conservation. So once you establish this in, in tropical important plant areas, you can actually direct your conservation efforts into these areas and these habitats. Well, that's wonderful. And it's nice to see proof of concept, right? Because a lot of times... You know, it's one thing to say a species is endangered. It's another thing to go through all of the steps to pragmatically trying to do something to conserve these species. Yeah, exactly. I think we have to recognize that we don't have infinite time to save these species. <laughs> so, you know, we have a little bit of a race against time. And we, unfortunately, and as you mentioned, we don't have, you know, the financial capacity to do everything uh, and we don't have the time. We we have to choose. So these are this is a way of prioritizing conservation. Sure. So what does your job look like? I mean, where do these data come from to make these assessments? Is it a lot of on the ground work? Is it a lot of collaboration? How does it all play out? So that's a, a really interesting question, and I think that explains why am I based in the herbarium hmm. within a botanic garden, because the beginning how we start putting all this, uh, all, all this data together, we look at our collections. So we have almost 8 million specimens in the herbarium and the fungarium at Kew Gardens. And basically what we do is we pull all the herbarium specimens that we have for a particular species. We database, we digitize these records. If there's not a latitude and longitude specified on the specimen, we try to geo-reference this specimen because we need the distribution mm. of the species. So that's where we start, really. 
And then we go through all the literature and try to find where this species has been referred in the literature. And then we, do, we go into the field and try to look for these species and try to gather as much data as possible. Also, where is this species? And also by observation, what are the threats that uh, putting these species in danger, basically? So it's a combination of, uh, of many things. And because we always work in partnership with our colleagues in the territories, there's a lot of long-term monitoring that occurs that allows to basically put all these data together. So I don't do this on my own. I rely on this big partnership of people. So whenever I finish a conservation assessment, it goes to a, a big group of people to see if, if everyone agrees with the, um, uh, you know, with, with the conclusions that I reach for a particular species. Sure. And that's a really good point to bring up is that, again, from start to finish, none of this happens with one avenue or one type of approach or one group of people or one person in general. This is collaborative across the board and it's multidisciplinary. I mean, to value herbariums is to also value the conservation data that comes from them. And without one or the other, you really don't do well or we'd be in a lot worse shape with the planet than if we, uh, you know, work together on it. And in, in thinking about you know, you're overseas at Q. There's people on the ground that have to go and ground truth this. It's not always you. Unfortunately, it'd be nice to go to the islands all the time and do that, I'm sure. But, um, you know, is My it... My colleagues do a wonderful work. <laughs> <laughs> and thankful for them. Uh, but, you know, is this is this locals on the ground? Is it universities? Is it different kinds of organizations that are on site kind of helping out ground truthing a lot of this stuff? It, it really depends on the capacity of the places, um, you have places where they have uh, strong universities and uh, um, I'm thinking about Puerto Rico where we have an, an amazing network of universities and students and herbarium and people that uh, are incredible botanists, which, uh, you know, they they pretty much can do this work and do this work in a, in a daily basis. You have places where there there's strong um, NGOs that do this work and they have people there that know the plants and uh, do this uh, this kind of work in the British Virgin Islands. We work directly with the National Parks Trust, which is um, is managed by the the government. Uh, so it, it really really varies on the, the local capacity, and that is something that we actually do a lot: is to raise the level of local capacity to allow people to do that, to have ownership of this monitoring. You also have volunteers, people that have a, a general interest on plant conservation and want to help. So it is a group of people with very different backgrounds, but hopefully we all converge for our interest to preserve the plants. It's funny because, you know, we, we, use, we use emails, we exchange data in the database. For instance, for the British Virgin Islands, we have a WhatsApp group where we exchange, <laughs> where our colleagues put photos of the plants and we can help to identify. You can use any platform as well to create these um, these networks. Wow, that's actually really refreshing to hear that, the, you know, kind of embracing what is available out there and, and just using the different tools available to you because thinking about it from a very stiff, uh, rigid perspective of the bureaucracy side of things, um, you know, it can kind of get disheartening, I'm sure, after a while. But to know that there's kind of like a slapdash, everyone's involved, as many as people as possible, and it's kind of across the board you know, really just uniting everyone for this common cause, which is botanically focused, which again, 
you know, in the greater picture of things seems so rare, but so vitally important to the health of ecosystems anywhere, but especially on small islands. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you anymore. <laughs> I think yeah, it's exactly that. I think it's by raising raising awareness of what's uh, what is surrounding us and what surrounds people on these islands that you can you can increase plant conservation and by conserving the plants you conserve the ecosystems and you know everything else that is related to that. So it's it's a very good. Uh, yeah, for us, it works well. Yeah, and that's great. Um, but unfortunately, thinking about this from the floristic side of things, as someone that's been working at this for a while now and, and is and is really immersed, is it a dismal picture for a lot of the endemic flora? Is You know, I don't necessarily need numbers on this, but are there a lot of endangered and threatened plant species, uh, at least in the Caribbean? There are, I have to be honest, yeah. There are a lot of threatened species. So especially when we start analyzing the endemic plants because they restrict it to such a small place and it's hard for them to escape these threats, most of them will come into a threatened category. But I'm an optimistic person and I think (laughs) that, uh, you know, the more we raise awareness of these plants and the threats, I think the more we raise the chances that these plants will survive and I have very good examples, like in the British Virgin Islands, that it's probably the, the territory that uh, I know the best. There's people that work on the ground every day to try to implement conservation, that do seed collecting, that do native species plants nursery. You know, the, the local botanic garden is actively working to protect these species. So I believe that it's possible to save these species. I think we have to somehow is reduce the human pressure that we do on these habitats, on these plants. We have to believe, otherwise, you know, our work is meaningless. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, the beautiful thing is about it, I mean, the silver lining, I guess, would be that there are so many opportunities for so many more people than just conservation NGOs or botanical gardens to get involved. I mean, picture a scenario in which maybe not a super threatened plant species, but something that is rare now being incorporated into, say, resort landscaping more or making recommendations to the local government when they're designing a new park system or something like that to to take into consideration. I mean, having these data and having an understanding of what's going on, like you said, is so important in making those next steps. I agree uh, 100% with you, actually. That's one of the objectives of the UK Overseas Territories Programme at Kew. And I'm going to give you an example now now in the Caribbean, but uh, a project that my colleagues developed in the Falkland Islands, where they work together with a local nursery to create a native species plant collection. And they've been selling, so they would collect seeds and propagate seeds only from native species. And by creating this native species uh, collection, they're trying to promote it into people's gardens because native plants have less maintenance. Hmm. They will need less water. They will basically need less work. And uh, it's, it's an a incredibly successful initiative. They've been selling the plants in the farmer's markets, in the Christmas markets, and uh, yeah. sometimes they run out of the plants they have for sale <laughs> and working at the same time with a commercial nursery. So we actually increasing the income that a business already established in a small overseas territories. So I think it's a win-win for everyone. So I think that is the that's the way forward, really. Yeah, because... 
all too often conservation gets painted as kind of the antithesis of human development and like it or not humans seem to be forging on uh endlessly and if we can well, just to stay yeah yeah for now uh <laughs> But if we can insert better ethos and a better mindset about what we're doing, again, with plants, which really are the foundation of every terrestrial ecosystem, you know, human development doesn't always have to be 100% negative for the planet. Of course. And I think that is the key, you know, is that we, we learn how to have probably a smaller footprint on everything that we do and learn how to impact less the habitats and the ecosystems, and we can almost establish a partnership with the plants because they're essential for us to breathe, to eat, to have clothes. You know, they give us the fibers for our clothes. So, you know, it's um, yeah, we have to we have to learn how to mutual respect each other, isn't it? And each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving plants an identity. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Maybe uh, that will benefit plants. I think more in the long run. I have no problem with the little anthropomorphizing of the botanical realm. So you've been doing this again for a bit, and I'd be remiss again if I didn't ask you if there's a handful of species that really stand out to you that really kind of left a mark during your time working on them. It's okay if not. I, I realize that's an extremely difficult thing to ask, but is there any, you know, especially among the Caribbean flora, uh, species that really stand out as, as special or unique to you for some reason? Yeah, I have to say I do have my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's one plant that's called Acacia nagadensis or Vocellia nagadensis, depending which of the taxonomy you follow. <laughs> but it's a legume, uh, and it's a legume um, endemic to the British Virgin Islands. occurs in two islands. One is a limestone island uh, of Anagada, and another very small island, which is a national park, that's called Fallen Jerusalem. And it's it, it's a it's a big tree. is locally common on Anagada, but it's you know for it's a very small island. So even if it's locally common in the global perspective, occurs in a very very small landmass. Mm. But it's um, it's the plant that I did my uh, master studies on. So I, I develop a, a close relationship with this plant, mm. and um, yeah, it, it really creates a certain habitat around this plant. So I, I really. Yeah, I really enjoy uh, going to Anagada and seeing these big, big trees there. There's also a cactus called Leptocerus quadrucostatus, which occurs on the on Anagada as well in the British Virgin Islands and also as well on the island of Puerto Rico. And on Anagada is occurs on these keys in the middle of the island, which are quite special because of the plant composition. But they're also special because they're the favorite spots for the endemic iguana, which feeds on the fruits of this cactus. So it's a in-whole ecosystem that is created by these uh, special plants. So maybe I, I'll, I'll mention these too. <laughs> Otherwise, I can go on. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very clear you are very passionate about the flora of these regions. And it's nice to hear a little subset of, of what makes them so special. And, and again... It's it's heartening to hear these stories in relation to the bigger picture and, and the fact that these are habitat building. They're, they kind of form the basis of the ecosystem. And that's, I'm assuming, one of the major reasons why you do the work you do. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Because without plants, you won't have iguanas, you won't have the insects, you won't have... So it's uh, an entire ecosystem that you're protecting. Beautiful. 
So what's on the horizon? I mean, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, there's other islands that you work with, there's other territories, you know, what's what's kind of on the horizon for you? Well, uh, I mentioned the tropical important plant areas. So we're coming to the end of the first project we did for the overseas territories. So that was in the British Virgin Islands. And this is a project that all my colleagues in my team work on. So I, I wasn't working on this on my own. My, my role was really to do the red listing that would then feed into this big project. But we're having a big workshop in April in the British Virgin Islands, where we'll invite colleagues from other overseas territories to see if, if they can actually implement the important plant areas on their own territories. I think that's quite exciting because wow. we basically did the proof of concept and tried to increase the amount of overseas territories that they implement this important conservation initiative. I think that it's important when you develop a project that then gets implemented in other territories. It kind of proves that it works, basically. So for me, that's quite uh, quite exciting. We, um, I'm also participating on a new uh, Darwin Plus project, also in the British Virgin Islands, where we're going to study. Um, until now, we've been focused more on single species distributions. We're now going to map full habitats and try to study the flora and the fauna of particular habitats and see how resilient they are to climate change. So I think that's quite an exciting project that I'm going to be involved. So I'm looking forward for it to start. Yeah, vitally important work. I wish you all the best in these new adventures. And again, proof of concept and being adapted and, and utilized in other places has got to feel uh, just as good as, as, you know, collecting seeds and growing an endangered plant species and then knowing it can be done elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about this work, uh, more about your work, more about Q, how do you recommend they, they search for more? So they can go to the Q Science webpage on the Q.org website and look for the UK Overseas Territories page. They can also follow us on Twitter. We have a very active Twitter account, this QUCODS. And we try, so it's an account where we try to promote the work that we do, but also the work that our colleagues in the Overseas Territories do. So you will see some of the tweets which are about our work and retweets that talk about what other people do for plant conservation, for animal conservation, all of our conservation in the Overseas Territories. So I would say these are probably the two channels where you can directly hear about the work that we do at Q with the overseas territories. Fantastic. And I will be putting up links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. But Sarah, thank you so much for enlightening us about this vital work. Uh, keep it up. This is so important. And the planet thanks you. We thank you. Well, and thanks for inviting me to talk about the work and uh, to try to uh, tell your listeners <laughs> <laughs> The work that we do in the overseas territories. Yeah, of course. And always uh, open door policy here. You are welcome back on any time. So do stay in touch. We'd love to hear how things develop with uh, the program. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you and have a good one. Thank you. Cheers. A lot of food for thought in that conversation. I thank Sarah for taking time out of what is definitely a very busy schedule to talk with us. I learned a lot from this conversation and I hope you did too. I gotta say I'm uplifted by all of the partnerships and collaborations that make these projects possible. It's really heartening to know that there's people on the ground doing the important work across the board. Again, I thank Sarah and her colleagues at Q for doing the work that they do, and for taking the time to share her insights with us. 
Before I leave you for this week, I just want to give a special shout out to Kevin. He is our latest patron over at patreon.com slash plants at the producer credit level. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you to everyone who has given to Patreon this far. It helps make this podcast what it is each and every week. Don't forget we have apparel and other accessories for sale. Just head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash plants and check out all the cool designs and different things you can get your hands on. And a portion of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. As always, I have so many great things on the horizon for you, so keep checking back in, and the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button. And while you're over there on whatever podcatcher you use to download this, give us a review. Reviews help Indefensive Plants reach a wider audience, and they help me make a better podcast for you, provided you keep things tactful and constructive. But whatever you do, I hope you all have a fun and safe week. Get out there and get botanizing if there's things popping up in your area, or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, take advantage as fall approaches. All right, everyone, until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.